Hey, it's Jay here. Normally, I'm the lead producer on this show, but this week I'm covering for Gordon as host. From Sighted Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Jay Coburn. Darts and Letters is a show about ideas, about politics, and occasionally it's about a coming-of-age story. Our teenage years are all about rebellion. They're about figuring out who you could be and doing that by sticking your middle finger up to authority. And in the late 80s, that's what video games were doing. After a couple of decades of games with pretty simple graphics, mainly appealing to kids, Nintendo released the Super Nintendo Entertainment System, or the SNES. And Sega released what I knew as the Mega Drive, but in North America, it was known as the Sega Genesis. 16-bit arcade graphics. It was marketed as this supercharged gaming machine with hyper-realistic graphics. They obviously don't hold up to today's standards, but they were a big step forward. The kids who played the games were also entering their teens, and you can hear that anti-authority sentiment in the adverts. Bad enough that Sega Genesis has the most 16-bit games, but this new Sonic the Hedgehog, oh, he really ducked my doilies. They say he's incredibly fast. Well, what's the hurry, mister? Hmm? This was the era of Nintendo versus Sega, the console wars, and Sega were pushing to capture that teen market. But this wasn't just advertising, it was an industry finding its feet and beginning to figure out just what video games could do, what part they might play in wider culture. Developers were beginning to make games that were more than just toys for kids. They were experimenting. And one of those experiments was Mortal Kombat. It was originally an arcade game developed by Midway. It's a pretty basic fighting game, but it was really bloody, especially the finishing moves, fatalities. Sub-Zero. Wins. Flawless victory. Fatality. The most famous of these was probably done by the character Sub-Zero. He rips his opponent's head off with the spine still attached. It's hyper-violent, and teenage gamers loved it. Then the game was ported to home consoles from the arcade. Nintendo's version stripped out the blood and violence. Sega's didn't, as long as you had the right cheat code. But, like any good teen rebellion, the parents stepped in and they tried to shut down the party. And that's what we're really focusing on in this episode. Moral panic. Mortal Kombat ended up being discussed in the United States Senate at a congressional hearing on violence in video games. Like so many forms of entertainment before, video games became the political football of the moment. Politicians played into parents' fears of violence. The media repeated claims that violent games make violent kids. By now you've heard it a thousand times, and by now you know it's mostly nonsense. It's such a tired story, and it happens over and over. This term, moral panic, is actually really well established. It was made popular in a book by Stanley Cohen that was published in 1972, Folk Devils and Moral Panic. Cohen says that a moral panic occurs as a reaction to something seen as challenging social norms, and the nature of mass media means that the problem, real or imagined, seems far bigger and more widespread than it really is. It gets turned into a kind of folk devil. Moral panic is when you stop asking questions and presume you have found the answers. And that refusal to ask questions or dig deeper 
I think is what gives them their particular charge. That's Professor Henry Jenkins. He's a media scholar, and he actually testified at the congressional hearings after the Columbine massacre a few years later. There, they tried to pin the blame once again on video games. The moral panic continued. So they typically have started, sometimes with academic researchers, sometimes with moral reformers, who are pushing hard to focus energy around a particular media property of some sort. It could be radio dramas and serials. They could be comic books, which was the big moral panic of the 1950s. It could be rock and roll. Almost invariably, there are new and emerging forms of media that particularly attract the young, that are involved in content that may be somewhat controversial, or represent activities that were not part of the childhood of the parents' generation. So a moral reformer will push political leaders, will push parents' groups, push journalists into more and more increasingly inflammatory rhetoric, which leads to rarely legal crackdowns, but much more often social crackdowns, the stigmatization of certain kinds of activities. I'll speak to Professor Jenkins in depth about the 99 Columbine hearings later in the show. Right now, let's go back to those hearings in 93. These were a classic example of moral panic. I made myself sit and watch the whole three-hour recording on C-SPAN. The hearings were led by Senators Joe Lieberman and Herbert Cole. You might remember Lieberman went on to be Al Gore's running mate. On paper, their goal was better regulation for the video game industry. But watching these hearings... Well, there's a lot more grandstanding than is really necessary for that. They begin with Senator Lieberman describing the horrors of violent games. These games teach a child to enjoy inflicting torture. For those who have not uh, seen these uh, so-called games before, I want to show you uh, what we're talking about. What you're about to see are scenes from two of the most violent new video games. First, we have Mortal Kombat which is a martial arts contest involving digitized characters. We're going to show two versions of the game. In the first segment, which is Sega's version, blood splatters from the contestants' heads. When a player wins, the so-called death sequence begins. The game narrator instructs the player to finish, and I quote, finish his opponent. The player may then choose a method of murder, ranging from ripping a heart out to pulling off the head of the opponent with spinal cord attached. The second version made by Nintendo... Then the hearing is played some clips from Mortal Kombat and from another game called Night Trap. It's kind of a B-movie horror homage. Now we'll go to the Night Trap uh, sequence. And watching this, I laughed out loud, because after Lieberman's description, and perhaps this is just the benefit of hindsight, these clips looked really silly. Compared to actually gruesome horror movies out there, like, say, Alien from 1979, Night Trap is really tame, and Mortal Kombat is just cartoon violence with some red pixels as blood. But the theory seemed to be that because you had to press some buttons to make the pixel blood come out, you are participating in the violence so you became violent. For most of the three-hour hearing, politicians and campaigners repeated that claim. Video games will make your children violent. Experts can debate whether entertainment violence causes brutality in society or merely reflects it, but there should be no dispute that the pervasive images of murder, mutilation and mayhem encourages our kids to view violent activity as a normal part of life and that interactive video violence desensitizes children to the real thing. When you combine those with virtual reality technologies, like Sega's Activator, which literally allows you to have your movement sensed, punching, hitting, kicking, all translated into the computer, we have something which is a remarkably different and new type of thing.
and the only word you can say to the manufacturers and the shareholders of the company is shame on you. And I think that they really should um, stop and think about what they're doing. I mean, how would you like to have a teenage daughter go out on a date with someone who's just watched or played three hours of that game? But there wasn't really any research to back up these claims. The studies they did talk about were all about television and were kind of questionable anyway. To these campaigners, it was just obvious that violent games made violent kids. There is no research concluding that this has any lasting impact. In fact, quite the opposite is true, you say. My sense is that you, you really don't get what this hearing is about, and I don't... And that's what I mean by it being a classic moral panic. Like Professor Jenkins said earlier, they stopped asking questions, they presumed they had found the answers, and they refused to dig deeper. Not much actually came of these hearings. They got their rating system, the ESRB, Entertainment Software Rating Board, but nothing actually got censored. We can play whatever nasty video games we like, although I've actually regressed a bit and mainly play my Nintendo Switch these days. At best, these moral panics are a political tactic used to divert attention from real problems. That was particularly obvious when Senator Lieberman waved a toy gun around. It came with a game called Lethal Enforcer, and without a hint of irony, he talked about how the toy gun was responsible for violence. But even if moral panics are really just a political diversion, they still have real-world consequences. Coming up in the show, Professor Henry Jenkins is going to help us dissect the reasons for moral panics more broadly. He testified at the 1999 hearings after the Columbine massacre. The push against video games was resulting in gamers being sent to therapy and uh, goths being punished. You know, people uh, being suspended for school for wearing goth paraphernalia. We're also going to get a bit of a history lesson from retro games journalist Cyril Lachelle. He watched the 1993 hearings the first time round, and he also remembers it as the moment that gaming journalism began to mature along with the industry. Up until that point, video game news wasn't really the driving thing in a video game magazine. The Electronic Gaming Monthlies and the Game Pros and the Video Games and Computer Entertainments and all of those different magazines mainly were there to hype games. But first, games critic and YouTuber, Leanna Kersner, after this. We need your support, and until you give us it, we're going to keep asking you for cash. Go to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. We do stories like this pretty much every week. Sometimes they're current, sometimes, like today, they're a little more historical. But either way, they take a lot of work, and we want to keep doing stories that other shows might overlook. And we want to keep doing them from our kind of inclusive, academia-critical point of view. I'm not sure I've seen anyone else doing this kind of work from this kind of angle. And we really will stop asking you for cash once you sign up to our Patreon. I do a separate edit every week that cuts out this slightly desperate plea for money, so you never need to hear us beg again. You can give whatever you want, but most people send around $7 a month. So help us out and hear less of me. Patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. Liana Kersner is a video game critic and a YouTuber, and she's been playing games pretty much her whole life. My mother held me up to a Pac-Man machine when I was three. I called it Bucka Bucka. <laughs> and it was love at first sight. <laughs> she was right in that teenage target age range when Mortal Kombat came out. And we've talked a bunch about how old people reacted to that game, but they're not really the main characters in this story. The gamers are. So I thought it might be best to see how some people who were actually young gamers at the time reacted to Mortal Kombat. Oh, jeez. Uh, I grew up in a pretty rough neighborhood in Tirana, the Jane Finch neighborhood. And I was in a convenience store at Yorkgate Mall. I was browsing around the shop, looking at magazines, I'm pretty sure. And all of a sudden I heard this, you know, boom, dun, 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 you know, the, the driving music that was in those old arcade cabinets. And it was like two invisible arms just reached out and grabbed me and pulled me towards it. And it it was instant. I mean, I was 15. Right. And there are ninjas who 
throw ice and like flaming harpoons and like a guy who does the Jean-Claude Van Damme splits out of blood sport. And then being female, I was like, OK, Sonia, I was terrible at Sonia. It ended up Luke Kang and Scorpion were my mains. But I, I was just I was hooked from that moment. There was just something magical about this insane collection of like Bruce Lee from Enter the Dragon, a bunch of ninjas, then Kano. And and like it, it was I just never seen anything like it before. And it was more of a visceral. This is cool than any attraction to the violence, which tends to get focused on. But for me, it was more just surrealism and something that was drawing from a very different root for fighting games than, you know, the big dominant thing at the time, which was Street Fighter 2. What is it about Mortal Kombat in particular over, say, Street Fighter 2 that sort of kept you playing? Okay, I mean, I like Street Fighter as well. I like Soul Calibur, but specifically with Mortal Kombat, it was a few things. Mechanically, it was directional presses. So back, forward, back, forward, up, down, instead of the sweeps uh, that Street Fighter did, which when you play a lot is a lot easier on your thumbs on console at home. I still have a, a scar on this thumb from playing Street Fighter. It will never go away because I <laughs> blistered my thumbs so many times trying to do Hadouken, you know. But also it was just... Uh, the mysticism, the magic, the sweeping melodrama of the whole thing was just a different kind of fun. You know, I'm a I'm a, a big sci-fi fantasy nerd from back in the days. So you get, you know, the I was big into Forgotten Realms at the time, Dungeons and Dragons. So you had the, you know, the evil sorcerer, but you also had a dude with a robot arm and a cyborg guy. Like it was all just in the same spot. And then you had those flex moments with the fatalities. And this is the difference between watching a game and playing a game. The fatalities, yes, they were really super violent, but they were of relative challenge to do. You had to memorize codes and input them correctly in a certain period of time at the correct distance, so on and so forth. So it was like this one last flex when you want a match to show I am awesome. Yeah. But, you know, at the time, it was all homages. Like it was the Predator spine rip. It was the Jean-Claude Van Damme punch from Bloodsport. It was... It wasn't creating a violent reality. It was just a big collection of things that people my age and of my interest set thought were cool. And I mean, you got to remember, this was 90, 92, 93. Yeah, it was 92 that it came out. And then the Senate yeah. hearings were 93. Yeah, we had Batman movies in theaters and that was kind of it. At the time, so Mortal Kombat was like phenomenon. There was like movies and a dance music track. And it, it was this whole thing because gaming itself was hitting puberty, like literally. And this was part of the problem was that the change of it being for kids stuff and it being for teens and young adults was happening in real time. The, you know, I'm Atari generation. Pac-Man pretty much outs me as that, right? I played on Nintendo, but I was I was a little too old for I loved Mario, but when you got those Sega does what Nintendo don't enhance graphics, more mature games, different experiences, I was right in that pocket. Of course, the world did to video games what it's done to, you know, Rap music, rock and roll, jazz, even novels, you know, it, it was almost like the Night of the Living Dead panic or the Dungeons and Dragons satanic panic all over <laughs> again. It, it, it just hit the same buttons, right? I mean, I did the D&D &D panic. I'm not old enough for Night of the Living Dead, but I did the D&D &D panic and then I did the Mortal Kombat panic and then I did the Doom panic a few days later and now I'm doing like the sexism and gaming panic. I, I cannot escape. 
I mean, it happened again after Columbine. There was a huge task force that was headed up uh, by Joe Biden as vice president after the Sandy Hook shootings. They just keep going back to that well. And one of the theories is that if, you know, they focus on video games, then they don't have to address the actual reasons for violence. I totally agree with you that it's much easier to target violent video games and it's a much easier vote winner than it is to actually tackle inequality and access to firearms and all the rest of it. But we're also looking at this with kind of 2020 hindsight. Do you think any of it was justified in the 90s? Nope. Nope. Not from where I sat, right? Because I was in a neighborhood where kids were actually going out and stealing stuff and knifing people in schools and having something to do after school was a powerful diversion. And so if you could go over to your friend's house and beat up each other in a game or Mortal Kombat, or, you know, we rented a PlayStation a few years later, played Resident Evil, when you're not out causing trouble, you're not out causing trouble. You know what I'm saying? Anybody that works with children or youth knows anything that gets them off the streets where they're causing trouble is a good thing. That was Liana Kersner, video game critic and YouTuber. And we're going to come back to her later in the show to talk about what she says is today's moral panic in the video game industry. Now, though, Cyril Lachelle, he runs Defunct Games, where he writes about defunct games consoles and retro games. So he's going to help us get a better view of what that pubescent games industry was like in the early 90s. The defining thing was the console wars, Sega versus Nintendo. The difference between the two companies was most obvious in their two different versions of Mortal Kombat. The Genesis version promised, assuming you had the right code, the cheat that you you put in at the beginning, it would turn on all the fatalities, it would turn on all the blood, you would get basically a arcade perfect version of the game, whereas the Super Nintendo version... You didn't have a code. You you know, every time you hit somebody, sweat would fly out. It it had fatalities, but they were friendlier. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't as gruesome. Nobody's heart was getting pulled out. Nobody's uh, head was getting you know. It was it was more along the lines of hey, this person's getting frozen. Right. So this is getting into what I wanted to talk to you about. So why did Sega and Nintendo do it that way? Well, you have to remember that. Where Sega was in 1993, or at least where they were in the early 1990s, they were coming off of a huge loss with the Master System, their 8-bit console that went up against the 8-bit Nintendo Entertainment System. The NES had sold 62, 63 million units, something, you know, around that, whereas the Master System barely got to 12 million units. And so they decided to focus on releasing the Genesis, which, at least here in the West, they decided that they were going to have a new attitude. They were going to try to be a little edgier. They were going to go for that sort of MTV attitude market with a a lot of commercials, with a lot of quick cuts and insulting and, you know, we're cooler than the competition sort of attitude. And... By 1991, you know, that's when Sonic the Hedgehog came out. That's when Sega actually started to see some real traction from the strategy. And they started to notice that they were able to differentiate themselves by being just a little bit older. They could paint Nintendo as kind of the, that's the kitty. That's what your little baby brother might want. The Super Nintendo, it's going to have Mario and it's going to have the stuff that the your kid brother might want. But we're going to have the stuff that the fighting games and the violence and the the big sports, you know, the rough and tough sports games and stuff like that. You know, you now that you've aged up a little bit more, maybe now that you're a 13 or 14 or 15 year old. Now that that's the stuff you're going to want. And their advertising campaign really focused on that. And so I think that when they saw the the opportunity that this is how they had painted Nintendo, 
they took the opportunity because it it was there. They could be the ones that weren't going to censor. They could be the ones that were going to be that edgy company because they had nothing to lose. They had already lost by 50 million units in the last fight. Was this um, the first sort of inkling that the video game industry was not just about toys for kids? Yeah, this was the fight for that. And you really saw that when they started talking in front of the Senate, which I'm sure we'll get to. It pushed the domino that that started this chain reaction that we, we still see today where we start maturing the video games industry to the point now where it's mostly adults playing games. So let's talk about those Senate hearings. What were you thinking when you watched them? When I watched them, because I saw them back in the day. I was 15 when those happened. And I was interested at the time, but like a lot of gamers, very against what they were trying to do. The idea that it it did feel like they were, uh, you know, trying to censor uh, the games and stuff like that. And for me at the time, I remember thinking, just noticing how many things they got wrong. And, you know, here I am, 15, thinking to myself, if these people are getting all this stuff wrong, just about something I know about, what are they getting wrong when it comes to everything else? Which, unfortunately, makes you a little cynical about the political process, which, (laughs) you know, we could continue on to, you know, the Internet's a series of tubes or whatever. Like, anytime they try to, you know, the, the politicians try to talk about anything revolving around technology... They know nothing about it. <laughs> and that was sort of my takeaway at the time. When I rewatched the hearings yesterday, now as an adult, uh, much older, I had a slightly different take. Obviously, the it's true they didn't know what, what they were talking about. They got a lot of information wrong. But I, I think some of them probably came from good intentions. The fact that for whatever reason, they couldn't get past the idea that video games were for everybody. They only focused in on how video games were for kids. And in my mind, I was trying to put myself in their shoes that if, would it be a situation where, you know, if I only thought that like eight-year-olds loved video games, then what I probably too would have had a similar reaction to seeing Mortal Kombat or what would eventually come with, say, Grand Theft Auto or <laughs> some of the more the more violent games that came sort of the post-moral panic era. I think I tried to do a similar thing to you in that I decided to sit down and watch these hearings and I deliberately didn't look up uh, Night Trap because I hadn't heard of Night Trap and wanted to see what mm-hmm. it felt like to, um, to see it for the first time. And he describes, I think it's Senator Lieberman, describes what sounds like a really horrific game and really mm-hmm. like sinister. And it does sound like it's an awful depiction of the way women are treated and stuff. And then he plays this clip and I laughed out loud because <laughs> full motion video clip of like mm-hmm. the man hiding in the shower. And mm-hmm. it was like a bad <laughs> pantomime. Like it was like, he's behind you. Yes. <laughs> like it was just ridiculous. And there was no blood or gore no. that I saw in the clip. And presumably they found the most shocking part of the game to play in the video because they wanted mm-hmm. to shock people. And I was just laughing at it. And I was like, what an... Uh, and, Senator Lieberman almost looked kind of embarrassed playing it, like as if he knew that this didn't quite live up to what he was saying. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The Mortal Kombat (laughs) screen where he shows the very pixelated head being ripped out on top of the spine. I took a screen grab of that and even sent it to my mom. And I was like, mom, this is the video games you stopped me playing when I was a kid. And she just replied with like cry laughing emojis. (laughs) (laughs) It just seems so ridiculous now. Right, yes. They overhyped how bad Night Trap was. You know, especially that clip even had kind of goofy music mm-hmm. in the background, which which made it even less scary and less, like, traumatic. They highlighted the fact that it's these, you know, it's these masked people coming in to kill young women in a, a sorority house, which was already wrong, and, you know, take their blood in a violent way. And they're scantily clad, which they, they really weren't. Nope. And, I mean, look, the, the way they describe it is the way that you could have described almost any scene out of any horror movie that had come out within the last 20 or even 30 or 40 years. You could have easily described 
Alfred Hitchcock's psycho shower scene in exactly the same way. It's this really tame horror film that if it had, even at that time, if it had been an actual movie, it wouldn't even have gotten an, an R rating. It would have been a flat PG-13. It may have even been PG because there's really not any blood. It's pretty safe. I mean, it's interesting to look back on because it is sort of that B movie that's, that's yeah. just so cheesy that it's kind of fun to watch. Nobody that actually played the game would be that outraged by it. So do you have any idea of why they latched on to these games then? Like, how did this get to Senator Lieberman? There was a drumbeat that was starting to build pretty early on when it came to video games. We can go back all the way to, uh, I charted it back to 1982 with a, uh, a CBS evening news report by Dan Rather, who was worried about video game addiction. That seemed to be kind of the the start of like the media fear-mongering video games. And that only increased when we got into uh, the, the Nintendo Entertainment System in 1985. And that sold, you know, big, big numbers. But you did see the media, maybe not as a whole, but just, you know, there are little pockets in the in the late 80s and then early 90s where you started to get those, are video games too violent? You started to, to hear whispers of those. You saw it with first with Chiller, an arcade game about dismembering people. You saw it with Splatterhouse in 1988 and with Narc in also in 1988, which is used some of the technology and was from the same company that would eventually go on and do um, Mortal Kombat. And I think that just because this was getting louder in the media, this was their chance. This was the, uh, the the government's chance. And look, they've always done this. You know, we can we can go back to the 30s and with like the Hayes Code for movies or the MPAA ratings uh, in 1968. There's always been this hysteria about entertainment, and it was just it was just video games turn. Do you think any of the manufacturers kind of courted this a little bit? Because, I mean, looking at Mortal Kombat, it worked. It got the sales, mm. having all that blood and gore in there. The Sega version sold a lot more than the Nintendo version. Substantially more, absolutely. I mean, more, more than anything else, because, you know, Midway, you know, that was created as an arcade game. Midway wasn't, they didn't even make the home console versions. Midway made it as violent as they could in order to differentiate themselves from what was the biggest fighting game at the time, which was Street Fighter 2. Yeah, I, they knew what they were doing. I wouldn't go as far as to say they intended there to be like hearings or something like that, but they <laughs> clearly did know that this was going to get media attention. Okay, so how did the press cover these Senate hearings? Well, if we're talking about like the mainstream press... They already had the narrative that video games were probably too violent and video games should probably be censored in some way. That was the perspective at the time from the mainstream media, whereas mainly because the, the audience for the video game magazines were the kids or teenagers that were that were buying up the games. At first, they started uh, covering it you know, by first just doing some straight news things where they explained what happened. But then a lot of the, you know, for, for months and months and months, their letter sections would be, mainly be people arguing back and forth. They would try to present both sides as much as they could. And then as it went on, as the debate went on, a lot of the magazines would bring, you know, there, there, there was a professor during the hearings that had written a anti-video game violence letter that I think had been published in some of the newspapers. That was also reprinted in the magazines, and a bunch of the magazines debunked a lot of the claims that kind of went bit by bit. You do have to realize, and I think one of the, the big things about this is that up until that point, video game news wasn't really the driving thing in a video game magazine. The Electronic Gaming Monthlies and the Game Pros and the Video Games and Computer Entertainments and all of those different magazines mainly were there to hype games. You know, review them or just preview them, show big spreads of the screenshots. It was kind of just a hype machine. 
you know, maybe GamePro would sneak two or three pages of news at the very end, or you would get some kind of fluff stuff about, you know, oh, there, you know, there's rumors of something coming up. But it wasn't really until, you know, this was around the time when you started to see the magazines realize that we need to start covering the news more in depth. It changed the way, like even the layout of the uh, of, of electronic gaming monthly at the time that would go for the rest of the time where they, they, you know, it used to start with the reviews, but now it starts with a bunch of pages of news with the reviews way at the back. And you also saw magazines come out of that that were all just news, like Next Generation Magazine, for example, only focused on news. They barely looked at reviews or games or hyping or anything like that. It was mainly looking at sort of the industry as a whole and the news that came from it. And then, you know, that, of course, continued with, you know, the rise of the Internet and stuff like that. And you see a lot more of that these days. It changed the way that the the media, the, the video game media, or the magazine media looked at news. So it does seem like there was this era of the moral panic and everyone being terrified of violence and stuff. Mm -hmm. But then with the arrival of the 32-bit consoles, so I'm talking the PlayStation 1, you began to have games like Metal Gear Solid, you had Goldeneye on the N64, even Nintendo were allowing mature games that showed blood. Slightly, I'm thinking of like Perfect Dark, for example, eventually came out. Goldeneye had blood. Why the change? Why the shift in attitude? You mentioned before uh, how well Mortal Kombat sold on the Genesis versus the <laughs> Super Nintendo. Okay, yeah. <laughs> that might have something to do with it. Also, um, look, Sega was onto something when they were talking about how the, the industry was getting older, how the, the gamers were getting older. And by the 32-bit era, by the, the Saturn and the PlayStation and 64-bit stuff with like the Nintendo 64, you really did see a lot more games not only age up, but also use that rating to their advantage. That was one of the unexpected uh, results to come out of it, was that developers saw the opportunity to push those boundaries with the rating system, whereas maybe they wouldn't have before without the the rating system. That, you know, now that... You know, just as long as they could keep in that M rating thing, they could kind of keep pushing those boundaries. So immediately after the hearings, that's when you got Postal in 1995. That's when you got Primal Rage in 1994, where, you know, a dinosaur literally urinates on the, the opponent. That's where you get Harvester in 1996 or Carmageddon in 97. Like, these are all in the wake of the rating system coming out and being inspired to push the boundaries because of that. That was Cyril Lachelle, video games journalist and editor-in-chief at Defunct Games. We'll link to Defunct Games and Cyril's work in the show notes. Despite the vague pointlessness of the 1992 hearings, the panic continued. I mean, even as recently as 2019, Trump was claiming that violent games were linked to mass shootings. And to be honest, I think he might have been thinking of Columbine. The two shooters played violent games like Doom, and obviously that was easier to blame than, you know, the guns they bought. And in 1999, there was another congressional hearing, and Professor Henry Jenkins testified there. He's a cultural studies and media scholar, or to give him his full title now, Provost Professor of Communication, Journalism, Cinematic Arts and Education at the University of Southern California. So he studies this stuff, and he can tell us why moral panics just keep coming back. So there's an interesting parallel to be drawn between the comic scare and the game scare. Comic scare starts as a children's medium that had been perceived before World War II as a children's medium, starts to acquire adult readers during World War II, particularly GIs in the war. And coming out of the war, the industry starts catering to those adults and promoting more mature content. And so you have this situation where parents perceive this as a children's medium and assume all comics published would be for kids. And so the shock of recognition of suddenly seeing horror and crime comics aimed at adults 
and assuming they're meant for kids leads to this huge backlash. In the late 80s, early 90s, the same thing's going on in video games, right? It starts out Super Mario Brothers, right? And suddenly we're seeing Doom and Quake, Mortal Kombat, Grand Theft Auto. These titles, the industry saw as for a more mature player because that first wave of players is growing up. New people are coming in, and these are the statistical tipping points where suddenly this children's medium is appealing to adults. But many parents assumed it's all going to be Sonic the Hedgehog or Super Mario Brothers and are shocked and outraged that someone would market something like Grand Theft Auto to their young offspring. It feels a little bit like, you know, I watched the Senate hearings relating to Mortal Kombat, and it feels a little like there's almost a fear of adolescence in general. Oh, absolutely. And I think that particularly intensified during that period of time because the demographic shifts suggest the emergence of a youth class that is the largest it has been since the baby boom, right? There's a huge growth if you look at the charts of who constitutes youth in American culture. Their tastes are starting to pull the marketplace. The baby boom's influence on media extended much longer than most generations because it was so large. Suddenly, there's a shift away from that toward youth. And there's an uncertainty about youth's place in a culture always, right? Adolescence is betwixt and between childhood and adults, which are much clearer categories. And so the adult tendencies of adolescence are things that often provoke the most anxiety. And someone said famously that in adolescence, we fear four girls, we fear males, right? And so both of those fit into this. You're trying to protect your daughters. You're trying to disarm your your sons because the fear of aggression among males is so high and when we respond to young people this is maybe a good point to start talking about the 99 columbine hearings then because you testified at those hearings and um i wanted to know why you wanted to testify in the senate oh i probably should have had my head examined but <laughs> i got a phone call like three days before the hearings were going to start from uh, some of the leadership of the the game industry asking if I'd be willing to testify. And this was based on having written some material about boys and computer games that had generated some industry interest. And I didn't do it because of the games industry, right? They're the invitation into the room because there are only two tables in the room. One of them positions you as a critic of the industry. The other positions you as an apologist for the industry. There is no table for citizens or scholars who are trying to take a neutral perspective on it. Well, really what I'd been reading was about the backlash against young people at high schools across America. Jonathan Katz had done some work for Wired just reporting on how the push against video games was resulting in gamers being sent to therapy and uh, goths being punished, you know, people uh, being suspended for school for wearing goth paraphernalia. I'd gone out to schools and spoke in various high schools across the country, and I was hearing stories like the woman who walked up to me wearing all pink and lavender said, I'm a goth. And I said, oh, and she pulled out of her, you know, out from beneath the top, this kind of ornate Victorian jewelry and said, yes, I keep this here next to my heart so I know who I am, but I have to go undercover when I'm at school. And that stuff just really hit me hard as a parent, as the housemaster at MIT dorm, as someone who had been bullied for my own unorthodox choices in high school, who's someone who used to wear a black trench coat when I was in, you know, high school. It really spoke to me on that level. And I wanted to push back against the ways that the Senate was lending credibility to bullying by school administrations against kids who were different. And so for me, that was what the stakes were. Congress was never going to pass legislation that affected the games industry. It might affect its bottom line in terms of parental approval or whatnot, but it was never going to pass legislation. So when you testified, can you tell me what you remember about the experience? Well, first of all, utter terror, right? Um, you know, we our panel was the last of the day. You know, we had listened to this, each of the senators stand up at the beginning of the hearing 
and give statements of what their positions were. So it was already prejudged. And there was a series of outrageous statements made and, you know, factually untrue claims. Then it was followed by the attack on the industry and the people who played games. And finally us. And you sit down on the chair for the first time. And I remember the chair is maybe the most vivid thing. You sit in this chair and it's designed to sink and sink and sink. It's a really puffy chair. So when you sit on it, your butt just feels like it's going to fall and hit the floor. <laughs> and you feel like a child sitting at an adult table trying to peer over it at the senators in front of you. And the, the images of hearings on TV hits you so hard at that point. And you're surrounded by posters of gory video game imagery that have been pulled out and sort of permanent display in the room. So you're set up as to feeling like you're on the wrong side from the very beginning of these hearings. And I'm feeling vaguely uncertain about what it is to appear alongside the industry people, you know, rather than with the other scholars who had been on the other table. And so all of that created a space of utter terror. And so I'm sitting there and I look at the video of myself today and my hands are, the papers are rattling in my hands because they're trembling so hard. I have to keep pouring glasses of water and guzzling them because I'm so nervous uh, going through that process. But somehow I got the words out and somehow I made the statement that I'd come there ready to make and felt vaguely proud, although I slunk out of the room no one had said anything to me afterwards. There was no sense of, wow, you did something that was meaningful. Slunk back home again, and then it the letters started to arrive. And I got email after email after email from people responding to my statement and discovering that it had actually been meaningful to significant numbers of people. But in that context, there was at least one voice that was not either self-congratulatory from an industry point of view, or attacking young people for their taste, but actually spoke for young people in the context of a governmental hearing. What were those other scholars saying, the ones who are on the different table? Well, they were the media effects crowd, right? And so they're making these arguments that video game violence results in real-world violence to varying degrees. By and large, they weren't even other scholars. They were the moral reformers who were mobilizing that scholarly research. So one of the things you discover really quickly is that media effects scholars have tended to make fairly modest claims about connections. They see it maybe as one influence, one factor among many that might result in greater violence uh, by a young person, a greater degree of social hostility, aggression, so forth. They rarely say it is in and of itself a cause of actual real-world violence. They usually use surrogates, such as do they punch a punching bag after violent play or aggressive play? You know, and of course, they're not ignoring the fact that hitting a punching bag is still play, right? Yeah. So what we're saying is violent play results in more violent play, if we look at that. I remember uh, David Grossman, who was one of the critics of the games industry at that time, said that the minute he saw or heard about Columbine, he knew that they would be video game players. And you look at that statement and you go, at that point, about 95% of American boys were playing video games. So the odds were overwhelmingly in their favor, his favor that he would be right, but it didn't prove anything. It wasn't really significant. Or Grossman would say something like, when he was a kid and you would play bang, bang, you're dead games, you know, if someone hurt themselves, you would stop and make sure they were okay. Whereas in a video game, you're killing person after person and you never stop. And you're going, yes, but you're not killing anyone. Actually, if your kid fell off a stool and scraped his leg, you probably would stop the game and care about him. That he, what's lost there is a degree to which people playing side by side may be playing against each other and still becoming closer as friends at the same time, just as if you're playing chess or basketball against someone else. It doesn't mean you're enemies and want to hurt them, it means your friends and bonding through some sort of symbolic activity that represents uh, you know, competition. So those are the kinds of arguments we were hearing, and they really don't hold up under close critical examination. Even if we wanna say they are a risk factor, the reality is that real world risk factors like domestic violence, like criminal influence in the community, involvement with gangs, access to 
firearms. These are much more immediate factors shaping whether a kid uh, shoot, is going to be a school shooter or not. In the case of Columbine, we there was a quote in Time magazine at the time that said every time Harris and Klebold, the two shooters there, got shoved against the locker, they came home and, th- and planned more violence and revenge. Was any of that nuance present in the other people's, other scholars' testimonies? Generally not. The scholarly research on the media effect side are largely indifferent to content or context. They choose a video game almost at random to run their test because media violence is media violence for them. It's a thing that can be quantified, not something that's actually pretty complex in its own terms. What do we mean by media violence? They remove kids from their ordinary context and place them in a laboratory setting. I don't know about you, but I've never played a video game in a laboratory, right? That's not a normal way of engaging with that medium. But it's really not a natural setting for observing what young people are doing with the, with that material. So they're, by nature, they're seeking the general and not the nuance, not the attention to the particulars that someone like me trained in cultural studies, media studies. We're looking at the particulars of individual texts and stories and how violence occurs in the context of a specific game. We're looking at observing people in their natural setting interviewing them, not simply measuring their biofeedback responses or some of the other measures that are indirect measures that media effect is looking at. So we are all about those nuances, those particulars. But the moral reformers and the media effects researchers who give them the raw materials they build on, they are not very interested in any of that nuance that we're talking about right now. So when you gave your testimony... Were they open to hearing it? Do you think they actually listened to you? No, not at all. First of all, the early parts of the hearing had most of the senators in the room. By the end, it was the chair and us. And so <laughs> there was a C-SPAN camera in the room that was broadcasting it. Otherwise, it was nearly an empty room. So the idea that you're hearing both sides is a farce. That was never really the goal. The goal was simply to get a message out that could be heard by other people. Did anything change as a result of these hearings? Not a lot from the ones that I was. As you touted, the moral combat one got some shifts in the, the industry self-regulation structure. Nothing really came out of the Columbine hearings. Certainly not, say, gun reform, right? <laughs> uh, you know, right? Since I yeah. think more people have been killed by guns than by joysticks, one Republican operative said at the time, we don't need gun control, we need goth control. And it just was that deflection of any toward guns, uh, goths, and video gamers away from guns. So to what extent does the media we consume shape our personalities, or is it more of a reflection of who we are? All right, so let's start with the media effects argument. The media effects argument is that media has an unconscious effect on us. That is, we absorb media it shapes who we are in a profound way, almost to the level of brainwashing. I don't buy that argument. As a cultural studies person, I think it's about meanings, right? So the media makes available to us a range of meanings, narratives, identities, which we are exposed to. From those range of meanings, which are already narrowed by the fact that it's controlled by a mass medium, but let's say nevertheless, within the menu that's out there, we select those that make sense to us. And they make sense to us because they resonate with our realities, our experiences, our emotional truths. They become a mythology, a set of resources we draw on to construct our own identity. And so it certainly matters that you and I were Star Trek fans, right? That Star Trek's an important story in my life. And I could describe to you what that was about, right? Growing up in a segregated city of Atlanta in the 1960s, seeing a multiracial cast and crew on board the Enterprise gave me a certain understanding about race that was not available to me in my everyday life, but spoke to something I was looking toward. That's about meaning, right? That's about the choices I'm making. And yes, it absolutely matters if you're making a silk purse, whether you have access to silk or a sow's ear, right? What the raw material is has consequences. It has the greatest consequences where it's reinforcing our existing beliefs. When it has to fight against all of our beliefs, it has a much more diminished effect, which is why for a normal kid, 
media violence messaging doesn't necessarily have a negative effect. It has the greatest consequences other than that where we have no direct access to it. So in a segregated society, representations of racial stereotypes can have a very negative effect because there's no reality to check them against. They become the reality. But the closer it gets to our direct experience, the more direct experience trumps it. The more, you know, if we've actually seen it, done it, felt it, we're not going to override that with a media message that is contrary to that. So that's the way I think about it. It's not that it has no influence, but it doesn't produce the kind of unconscious effects, effects we can't articulate, that media effects researchers want to believe. And the extreme version of that is the, the kind of moral reform discourse. That was Henry Jenkins, Provost Professor of Communication, Journalism, Cinematic Arts and Education at the University of Southern California. I want to return to Liana Kersner now before we end the show, because moral panics keep coming back, and Liana says we're in the midst of one right now. She's a sex-positive feminist, and the games industry has been truly horrible to women in the past. It was famously a bad place to work if you identified as a woman, And that led to most games being made with a pretty obviously male lens. If you look at the Mortal Kombat series, you can see women's costumes getting more and more ridiculous as later versions of the game come out. It's kind of interesting because in those 1992 hearings, they were sort of almost trying to make a feminist point, even if it was a little disingenuous. When computers first came out, computers and video games were played equally among boys and girls in the classroom. Now there's a turn and around where it seems more boys, of course, are comfortable with the technology. Video games are geared for boys. This is Marilyn Droz from the National Coalition Against Television Violence at those hearings in 1993. We are losing 50% of our children are losing the value of learning from the interaction techniques and te- uh, technology. We are now losing another generation of women if we don't start addressing that the video games must address the needs of all children and the need, of course, being a safe toy. But now Liana says there's an overcorrection. If we go back to Mortal Kombat, the female characters started out in clothes that showed some skin, but were pretty standard ninja outfits. Then they got gradually skimpier and skimpier. But then you go into this Mortal Kombat 10, Mortal Kombat 11 era where they've put a lot more clothes on these ladies, but there's sticky outy bits ever. And Netherrealm's art people actually went on the record and said that these costumes are more respectful than previous incarnations. And I actually dropped the series because I say, you know, I've actually worn this stuff. I would never fight in this stuff. There's too much to grab. There's too much that could impale you. It's lingerie boning, which digs in when you bend. She's wearing blinking heels. Liana released a YouTube video heavily criticizing Nether Realms. That's the name of the developers of Mortal Kombat now. According to Liana, the games industry, still jammed full of men, is freaking out about women showing skin in games. To shame the female form is not feminist. That is from a time where women were expected to be kept out of public view, not seen for their own protection. It's actually connected to the history of public bathrooms, where public bathrooms were all male back in the Victorian age, because women weren't supposed to venture far enough from home for long enough to need a public toilet, right? So if a woman really had to go, she'd squat over a sewer grate and hoped her skirts would hide it. Sounds like what? Yes, that's where these attitudes come from. I want to row back just a little bit and sort of paint the picture of what this moral panic around feminism is. Like, what does it look like in the industry at the moment? Boobs equals bad. And that form of quote unquote feminism, it's called sex negative feminism, technically. So it's anti-porn, anti-sex work. Anything sexual is inherently against women, right? That's what gaming's adopted. And all these ideas, more clothes equals more respectful, larger boobs are automatically, oh, you're you're a disgusting slut, right? You know, it's the virgin whore dichotomy. 
there's nothing sound about this. And this is not, this is not fact. This is a social construct. The entire concept of gender, gender role, and gender performance are social constructs. You know, medieval scholars would not understand the bathroom signs where pants for men, skirts for <laughs> women, because only horseback riders wore trousers. This is what I mean by construct. All this stuff is agreed upon norms. And I think it is extremely important to question these norms because the school of feminism I come from, which is sex positive sort of intersectional feminism that talks about gender as performance. I mean, Judith Butler, who is the, one of the great thinkers of, of um, gender performativity, based their research on drag performances, which is, of course, you know, people who identify as men, mostly that's changing in their like day-to-day -day lives, taking on this hyper-feminine gender feminine performance as art. So in that realm, gender is something you do. And why do you know, people who identify as male and some trans female performers, trans feminine performers get to do the big boobs and the big hair and the big makeup and the big shoes. But us actual cisgender women don't get to engage in the same kind of hyper feminine performance that these professional artists do. It makes no sense. It is making primary male opinion because let's face it, what do people say? Oh, a woman with her cleavage out is distracting. So why wouldn't I do it? If I can distract you with my cleavage, sizable as it is, why wouldn't I take that advantage in work? And, you know, listeners are uncomfortable just talking about boobs right now because, oh God, you know, no. But imagine you're a 15-year-old girl. You're a 16-year-old girl. And you're a D-cup at that age already. That's awkward, especially in the era where the beauty standard was Kate Moss. The waif right. was in. Mortal Kombat created this entirely different beauty paradigm for full-figured women that the rest of the world did not catch up to until very recently with people like Nicki Minaj and Megan The Stallion. So what's the answer then? Like, when it comes to people designing female video game characters, costumes for Mortal Kombat characters, mm -hmm. what would you do? Well, I'd go, if Shao Kahn, the big bad, is allergic to pants, you know, I don't know if you've seen this guy, but he has no shirt, he has his battle harness on, and he has a skull thing on his head, but he has no pants. Those legs are flapping in the breeze, right? Liu Kang is apparently allergic to shirts most of the time. If you're lucky, he will have vest. Johnny Cage was known for being shirtless. If men can show skin, women should be able to, too, because women are whole people who can have to have a full range of the human experience. So if men are allowed to peacock around and be sexual or at least semi-nude, women should be able to as well. The problem you get into is these fantasy armor settings where the men are in full plate with pauldrons larger than their heads and women are wearing these plunging necklines in leather armor that wouldn't stop an arrow. Mm -hmm. It's just basic common sense and basic dignity and treating female characters just like their male characters, like individuals. And you build the way the character looks from the character as a human being. And women should be allowed that full range of humanity. And thanks to the sexism in games moral panic that we're still going through right now that started around 2012, women are not allowed that full freedom of expression in art. We're expected to cover up for the comfort of, let's face it, the male-dominated majority of the people making decisions. That was Liana Kersner. She's a YouTuber, a video games critic, and she also does a ton of funny web series and other stuff. We'll put links to her work in the show notes. And that's it for this week's Darts and Letters. Our lead producer is me, Jay Coburn. Our managing producer is Mark Apollonio, and our associate producer is Ren Bangert. Our research assistants are David Mosscrop and Ali Susnick, and our editor and usual host is Gordon Katick. Our marketing assistant is Ian Souden. 
Our theme song and outro are composed by Mike Barber with graphic design by Dakota Coop. You can send us feedback, email the show dartsandletterspod at gmail.com or tweet at dartsandletters. This is a production of Cited Media and backed by academic grants that support mobilizing research and democratizing the concept of public intellectualism. This is also part of a wider project about the emerging politics of video games housed at UBC with advice from Leonard E. Naki at the University of Waterloo. We're also supported by our generous patrons. Join us and join them. Go to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. Patrons get content a day early. Thanks for listening. Check back next Friday. <laughs>